0: Hi guys, this is your host Trey and Jamie with the Dream Team Podcast. This is a podcast where we discuss everything about anesthesia and provide you with an easy way to earn continuing education credits. Thanks for listening today. So So let's let's get get to to it. it. Hi guys. Today we would like to welcome Dr. David Martin. He's a pediatric anesthesiologist at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. He's also the associate professor at the Ohio State University Medical Center and co-chair of the admissions committee at the Ohio State University School of Medicine. Today, he has agreed to sit down with us uh, and talk about pheochromocytoma. Thank you, Dr. Martin, for giving us your time and sharing your expertise. It's a pleasure to be here. So you did have the pleasure of providing an anesthetic for a pheochromocytoma resection a few times in your career, correct?
1: Yeah, almost 10 times. One case here at Nationwide Children's since I joined staff as faculty, and I think around eight cases as a resident at Duke University School of Medicine.
0: That's pretty amazing since these occur fairly rarely, approximately two to eight diagnoses per million per year. Could you describe or define what pheochromocytoma is?
1: So pheochromocytoma is one of a couple neuroendocrine-secreting tumors, and so specifically catecholamine-secreting tumors. So, but the pheochromocytoma, and the name, the name pheochromo, in multiple colors, is from the chromaffin cells of the adrenal medulla. So it is one of the catecholamine-releasing tumors, but they can also be extraadrenal, which would be, they typically originate in the sympathetic ganglia.
0: Okay. Well, how do we find these tumors? How do we, you know, how do these patients present to us?
1: So they can present with a myriad of symptoms. The typical triad of pheochromocytoma is hypertension, sweating. Okay. The patients can present with other symptoms or just one of the three of the triad symptoms. The important thing to remember is very few patients present with the exact triad of all three symptoms at the same time. There's multiple other reasons to work up a patient for pheochromocytoma, hypertension under 20 years of age, and palpitations in an undiagnosed other
0: fashion. Okay, so as far as treating the hypertension, what is the preferred method of doing that?
1: So typically the pheochromocytomas are preoperatively treated with alpha blockers. So, alpha adrenergic blockers. We'll discuss those in a minute. They're also co treated after the alpha blockade is underway with some beta blockers.
0: Okay, so what other sort of diagnostic testing? So, we, we're going to, we have our presenting symptoms, and now you have a suspicion.
1: So, first off, you start with the suspicion with symptoms that are consistent with the pheochromocytoma or an endocrine releasing tumor. They tend to be worked up with either a 24 hour fractionated metanephrines from the urine or plasma metanephrines. The thing about the plasma metanephrines is that it has to be drawn from an indwelling catheter after 30 minutes of rest in a supine position. So once that's done, the patients are scanned head to toe typically, but mostly in the abdomen, either with CT scanning or MRI scanning.
0: Okay. So we did talk about how to treat hypertension. Do we do anything special for treatment of arrhythmias?
1: So yes, beta blockers are more useful in patients that, that do present with arrhythmias. But the important thing about beta blockers is they should be initiated after alpha blockade is underway. So alpha blockade is done primarily using one of two classes of medicines. The first one would be phenoxybenzamine, which is an irreversible alpha blocker. So its downside is that the hypotension associated with it can persist for a significant period of time after the tumor is removed surgically. And then the second would be the selective alpha-1 blockers such as prazosin, terazosin, and doxazosin.
0: Okay. So, you know, historically, you know, survival rate on induction for these types of patients was not good. How is it now? Well,
1: if they're treated appropriately with alpha blockade, and so appro- what does appropriate mean? So appropriate means that the patient is orthostatic, meaning that they should have a blood pressure of around 120 over 80 while seated. But when they stand to gravity, it should be around greater than, but close to 90 millimeters of mercury. But just to go back to your question about induction of anesthesia, it's, it's safe now it's safe if it in, in the appropriate environment with the appropriate precautions. The scary thing about it is inducing one of these patients in an undiagnosed setting. So a, a patient that gets induced and they, they have poor intravascular volume, you give them medicines such as propofol that reduces systemic vascular resistance. And now you're left with a patient who is used to having a high SVR and it now has a low SVR and they're acting very high, very volume sensitive. So the intravascular volume of these patients is a is an ongoing problem, from all the way back to treatment with alpha blockers to the induction of anesthesia into the potential hypotension hypo associated after removing the tumor.
0: Okay, so you did mention controlling hypertension, vascular expansion, and vascular expansion being difficult. Why is that difficult in these patients?
1: So like I said, the patients present with a typically high systemic vascular resistance, SVR. So when you actually, if you think of it like as a tube, a constricted tube can hold less fluid than a a dilated tube. So you you turn a constricted tube into a dilated tube, and then they become hypo. they can be hypotensive because they're lacking intravascular volume.
0: Okay, so moving on from preoperative preparation, intraoperatively, what are your, what are we can even go through what would be the induction preference to how are you going to treat these patients if they show signs of hyper yeah. or hypotension?
1: So you're assuming that the patient's been appropriately preoperatively evaluated and treated. And in the my big thing would be just to make sure that I'm well aware of the echocardiogram. So you want to make sure that there's there's no cardiomegaly. You want to assess the degree of left ventricular hypertrophy. And you want to look for a cardiomyopathy associated with prolonged secretion of catecholamines. The cardiomyopathy associated with catecholamine tumors tends to reverse itself once they're treated and the tumor is removed, but you are assessing the, the degree of, of heart function preoperatively. So then we typically would put in a preoperative arterial line. So you care very much about their pressures going high, low, during specific parts of the anesthetic. So the anesthetic is basically broken into stages grossly. So the first stage would involve the placement of the, the, well, the induction of anesthesia, the placement of lines, and then the actual placement of the endotracheal tube. As you know, the endotracheal tube placement can be very stimulating. And so what would be a, it can be up to a tenfold increase in catecholamine secretion in the presence of a pheochromocytoma. So would make taking care of these patients that are undiagnosed scary. So when you do things like place an endotracheal tube, they can get very, very hypertensive. But again, stage one would be high endotracheal tube placement, insufflation of the abdomen, assuming that you're going to do a laparoscopic procedure, which is how most of these are done these days. And then the actual manipulation of the tumor is consists of stage one. Stage two basically it starts when the Effluent vascular supply to the tumor is, is clamped. So basically the catecholamines that are secreted from the tumor through tumor manipulation and whatnot stop becoming secreted into the plasma. So in stage two, you're dealing with totally different problems such as hypotension, volume depletion, the symptoms released due to lack of catecholamines and you should, by definition, have alpha blockade on board.
0: Okay, and do we have... S- a preference in selective alpha 1 receptor antagonists.
1: What's used more commonly is the selective alpha 1 blockers. They tend to be reversible, they last longer I mean they lasted to a shorter duration in the in the bloodstream and therefore you get back to a normal catecholamine responsive state faster. If the patient was on phenoxybenzamine, like I said earlier, they can be they can be hypotensive for a prolonged period of time after the tumor is removed. While after the induction of anesthesia, you have to be prepared to treat significant hypertension during those three parts of stage one. So there are many different ways to do it. And grossly, they can be broken down into medicines like nitroprusside, calcium antagonists, or magnesium. In my experience, I've done both. In my resident years, we used magnesium a lot. in the mechanism of action of magnesium is it actually causes a decreased re- release of the catecholamines directly from the tumor, but that also acts as a calcium antagonist peripherally. So there's less there's less calcium-associated effects to the catecholamines, such as increased SVR and increase in ionotropy in the heart. So we would actually induce, and right before we would put in the, in the endotracheal tube, my attending would be pushing magnesium. And then we put the patient on a magnesium infusion. So, a couple times that I've done it, we've given many, many grams of magnesium out to, to the course of the anesthetic. So, but the risk is that you can get into a hypermagnesemic state, such as to the point where you, you can get cardiovascular collapse, which with you you would treat with calcium. But the other concern is. This is prior to the years of Cigamidex, the patient can be very, very profoundly blocked with, with very small doses of non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockade on board.
0: Okay. So you've managed to get the patient through the anesthetic. How do you treat them post-operatively?
1: So it depends on what the surgery was. If it was a bilateral adrenalectomy, which is more common in familial or familiar cases or cases associated with, with syndromes such as von Hippel-Lindau, multiple endocrine neoplasia type 2, or neurofibromatosis type 1, those are the settings where you get bilateral pheochromocytomas. But if it's a unilateral one, it can be the postoperative course can be much smoother. But if it's a, if it's bilateral, you have to worry about low blood sugars, because now the catecholamines are out of the system, and what was a insulin resistant state because of all the catecholamines is now going to become an insulin sensitive state. So post-operative hypoglycemia and intraoperative hyperglycemia can be in issues. But if you have to do a bilateral adrenalectomy, you have to consider the fact that the patient will be adrenally insufficient. So you you need steroids and you need mineral al-corticoid activity as, as, as well as glucocorticoid activity.
0: Okay. Well, if you can forgive me, I kind of jumped ahead, I believe. I did have a couple of questions about intraop management. Do we typically put central lines along with the arterial line? And then, you know, if it's an open procedure, are there considerations for epidurals, and blood pressure management there? We'll let you answer this.
1: Okay. So, <laughs> so just like I said, arterial line placement is a must in a known pheochromocytoma state. Most places in the cases that I've done uniformly, we have put central venous catheters in, and that's just basically so you can give postoperative medicines to treat the blood pressure. So if they if they are profoundly hypotensive postoperatively, you can give medicine. You can give pressors. As far as the epidural, that's an excellent question. So we would treat these the same as you would treat a laparotomy, a planned laparotomy. So we would put an epidural in, just because of a pheochromocytoma, There's no reason to not put an epidural in, but you'd probably manage the patient a little differently. So whereas if you had a planned laparotomy, you may dose the epidural ahead of time before the surgery, actually the incision is actually made and then you'd run the epidural. We wouldn't do that. We would just put the epidural catheter in, test it with lidocaine and epinephrine and then assuming a negative test dose, just hold the epidural till it was safe to use postoperatively from a hypertensive state.
0: Okay. So we've talked about things that we want to give these patients medication-wise, are there things that we would like to avoid?
1: So one of the big ones in the literature to avoid would be Reglan or metaclopramide. And that's that's a dopamine-responsive medicine. So it actually affects the dopamine at the level of the receptor. And so there's cases of patients with pheochromocytoma dying with the administration of Reglan. I'm not aware of many other medicines that
2: I've read that ketamine is usually avoided on induction. Good thing you guys are here. Because (laughs) (laughs) it's sympathomimetic effects. Correct. And as well as ephedrine and meparidine.
1: Yeah, so ephedrine is an indirect acting agent. So in meparidine, it also has serotonin issues. The thing about ketamine is that it is a sympathomimetic drug. So once the catecholamines are out of the system, they can have negative ionotropic effects because it is a direct myocardial depressant, right? The issue with, Trey, you mentioned desflurane, is that can be a medicine that can trigger arrhythmias. So we would just use sevoflurane in these cases.
2: Yeah, I also read that as far as the, as neuromuscular blocking agents, we would want to avoid sucks as well for the catecholamine surge on induction. And did you guys use, in your experience, did you use Vecuronium or did you use something else?
1: Yeah, so we used Vecuronium in residency and specifically because that's what we had. You can get a tachycardia associated with rock uranium administration just right. because, A, it's, it's a painful medicine to administer in, in the peripheral veins. But there, there may be associated tachycardia with it. But we used rock uranium here at Nationwide when we induced the patient. Oh,
0: interesting.
2: And there weren't any nope. adverse effects with
1: that? So in, at Nationwide, like I said earlier, we actually use clavidipine and magnesium we used in residency. But the concern with using a calcium channel blocker can be a reflex tachycardia, so you do have to watch out for that. So when you are using medicines like nitroprusside or calcium channel blockers, you have to you do have to be prepared to to treat tachyarrhythmias. So commonly medicines are, are used for a short-acting beta blocker such as esmol. Yeah.
2: And would you also use other adjuncts on induction, such as fentanyl, lidocaine? Yeah,
1: so, so it really is, assuming typical alpha blockade or effective alpha blockade, it's, it's a typical anesthetic induction. You're just watching for very highs and very lows. You're assuming that, th- that the patient has a peripheral IV ahead of time, and typically I would, I would give them a bolus of fluid ahead of time because when you do give the propofol, you do put yourself in a lower SER state. So giving preloading the patient is, in my opinion, a good idea, and that's what we've done every time.
2: I do have a question about putting in the arterial line. At Children's, was that placed prior to induction? Because I'm sure it is recommended to do so in most cases. But at Children's, as we all know, it is not ideal to put any type of line in an awake child.
1: Any type of line is is a question. I, I'm not sure that's true, but but I will tell you this: that that taking care of children definitely puts you in a different place than you you are used to being in other situations. You can do things with an adult that you can't with kids because you can talk sens- sensibly to adults and. And they'll often hold still when you, you know, explain the risks and benefits. So in the patient that we took here here at Nationwide, we had multiple preoperative blood pressures. I assured myself that the patient was orthostatic, and so I was happy with the preoperative alpha blockade. So we just went ahead and went to sleep. And so we did an inhalational induction, but quickly placed an IV, and then we quickly placed, we gave the child a bolus of, of colloid fluid. But then we put in the arterial line. And the, the, the two things are, just like you said, what are we trading? We're trading a peaceful induction with some, midazolam, with some preoperative midazolam for a tachycardic state because the patient's hurting. So in our situation, we, we felt like the patient was preoperatively alpha blockaded enough and that we could safely induce the patient. Yeah, I
2: guess I, sh- I misspoke. I shouldn't have said any line. No, it's but okay. we all know that as pediatric providers, you know, children get very upset.
1: Yeah, it's a sympathetic state for sure. Absolutely.
2: So, you know, they're going to get this big catecholamine surge, which Mm -hmm. we're trying to avoid. So I was just curious as to what you guys did for that case here at Children's. I also have found or read in this article titled Pheochromocytoma Resection, Current Concepts in Anesthetic Management was published in 2015 in the Journal of Anesthesiology, Clinical Pharmacology, that sometimes preoperatively it is recommended to pre induction and the day before give Valium, and then on induction or just prior to induction, Versed. Mm-hmm. And was there any volume given to so we the gave, pediatric patient? Or? No,
1: we gave a preoperative oral dose of, of medazolam or versed. But okay. in, again, you, what you're doing is you're just trying to get to a low catecholamine state. Right. You're not trying. You're trying to give the patient no reason to secrete extra catecholamines while you're doing things like putting IVs in arterial lines or the sympathetic state of induction. Okay.
2: So after I have, want to go back to after the tumor was resected, particularly in, in your case did you experience severe hypovolemia and did you have to be aggressive with your crystalloid and colloid administration or just prior to tumor ligation to prepare for that hypotension?
1: Yeah so we definitely prepared for the hypotension with with fluid fluid boluses and aggressive hydration during the case. In the setting here at Nationwide where we use clavitipine we were able to just turn off the clavitipine and because it's such an ultra-short-acting calcium channel blocker, we were able to, you know, establish normal tension pretty fast. In the setting where I did residency, the magnesium would hang around a little bit, and the alpha blockade and the magnesium. So you, we we often would we, chase the blood pressure around with some phenylephrine and maybe even a touch of vasopressin. But the other thing is just you can reverse the magnesium with a little bit of calcium. You just have to do it judiciously.
2: Another interesting thing that I read in this article I just referenced is, in the eye of refractory hypotension, and you've tried everything, that methylene blue has been mentioned as a medication you could give because it has been used for the treatment of a few different things, including malaria, methemoglobinemia, and interestingly, neonatal hypotension. And It functions through a cyclic guanosine monophosphate inhibition mechanism that plays a key role in the vasoplegic syndrome. So I thought that was interesting to use this methylene blue to help with your hypotension and unstable hypotension.
1: So my experience with methylene blue was mostly related to the heart rooms and being on bypass in a vasoplegic state for like long bypass runs. And you're exactly right about its mechanism. It, ba- it basically is a scavenger of nitric oxide. So what it does is it just causes the SVR to increase a lot. I think the concern I've always had with methylene blue is in the distal vasculature, so the end organ perfusion. So you can cause the SVR to increase in the large vessels, but what are you doing at the, at the end organ level? So methylene blue hasn't always been my favorite medicine to use, but I mean, this definitely has a place.
2: So I guess, the what would be our key takeaways from the anesthetic management of a patient presenting for a female chromocytoma resection?
1: So we should just start at the beginning and the key takeaways are adequate preoperative assessment and then preoperative alpha blockade. If the patient is not appropriately alpha blockaded, then surgery should be postponed. But you also need to be have an appropriate preoperative evaluation so you know the cardiovascular status of the patient, and then you should be aware of the places that you have very stereotypical catecholamine surges associated with the anesthetic and the surgery. So anesthetically would be the end placement of the endotracheal tube or other high catecholamine catecholaminergic states. Is that a word? Um, <laughs> it works. <laughs> mumbled through it, and then like i said is abdominal insufflation and then the actual manipulation of the tumor so you have to be in constant contact with the surgical team about where they are right so if it's an open procedure it's harder to see than if they're if it's laparoscopic and on the screen but you have to be in constant communication hey we're moving the tumor around we're doing this but then when stage two starts and they clamp the adrenal veins you can you can bottom out so if they should be in contact and give you plenty of advanced notice so you can load the patient with IV fluids and be prepared to acutely raise their blood pressure. We know that the catecholamine half-life is very short, so what was a normal tensive state, as soon as they clamp the venous blood supply to the tumor, you can get hypotensive quickly. And then I think you have to be prepared to treat things like, like hypotension, the setting of you know adrenal suppression, and then, and then all the while throughout the entire anesthetic, you should be paying attention to the blood sugar high in stage one and can be low in stage two other thing is if you do decide not to necessarily go to an icu to a monitored bed right away if you do decide to extubate and go to pacu which is very common if you go to pacu and you see you have a lethargic patient the very, one of the very first things you should think about is blood sugar what's their blood sugar and so you should be prepared to give blood sugar i mean give glucose in or dextrose in, in some shape
0: do you normally hang dextrose containing fluids for them
1: no, no but stop. not necessarily but it's something you track right i mean you should be getting pretty frequent arterial blood gas samples so i think you've you may have to treat the pre tumor removal with some insulin but you also have to be prepared to treat give dextrose in stage 2 and in the pacu
2: fluid management with central lines still a frequent monitor that we use, or probably less
1: frequent, a swan GANS? So I've never had any experience placing a swan GANS catheter in these patients. I don't think it really adds that much. I mean, you can get a wedge pressure and have an idea of what your volume state is in the left, in left atrium, but I think that if you are aggressive with fluids and use your CVP pressure, so the central venous pressure, as a dynamic monitor, I think you can have a good idea of their volume sensitivity. So what I mean specifically about using the CVP as a dynamic monitor is you give a bolus a colloid and you see if the, if the CVP changes. If it doesn't change, they should be in a relatively volume responsive state. Now, if you give that same bolus again and the CVP ra- raises precipitously, then you should be in a relatively non-volume responsive state. So you can, you can test the physiology of the patient throughout the anesthetic.
0: Okay. Well... Dr. Martin, thank you so much for your time with us today. It was very informative.
1: Yes, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. This was fun.
0: Good. Maybe we can have you back again sometime. I look forward to it. Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another Dream Team podcast by Elite Anesthesia Education. Please go to our website at EliteAnesthesiaEducation.com and follow the steps to get your continuing education credit. Contact us if you would like to share an interesting case report or have an educational topic suggestion. We hope you will join us again soon.